0: Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of fightbacknews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggles. I'm your host Richard Berg, and I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in again to Fight Back Radio. Our next episode after this one's gonna—we're gonna cross the six-month mark, and uh, um, I think you know, I think we're doing pretty good. Uh, our, our sound quality has gotten much better. Not our, our technicians have always been good, but uh, I've learned how to turn the knobs right and not do things that uh, uh mess it up in a big way and uh so we're we're getting better with that uh, we've had just a, a fabulous set of guests over the set last six months the people that have agreed to come on to fight back radio and really go to the heart of the people's struggle and to talk from that perspective has been uh amazing to me and so if you're new to fight back radio i really want to encourage you to go back and look at past episodes and uh Go listen to Carlos Montes or Frank Chapman or Kobe Guillory or, or, you know, whatever. There are more and more. I mean, it's just uh, we've really had a, a good group of guests on this. And, and today is uh, no exception. We have a fabulous guest. My old friend uh, Joe Burns is on our uh, podcast today. And uh, uh, Joe uh, just uh, uh, published his uh, third book from uh, Haymarket Books. It's called uh, Class Struggle Unionism. And uh, those of you who have been critical of me of not talking more about theory uh, may like this uh, this episode. Uh, Joe breaks down in a very working class uh, a way, a uh, very understandable way some of the the theories about the the labor movement and uh, where we stand with things and how economics work and how why workers have to be part of any kind of progressive m- movement or struggle or anything serious about social change. And uh, uh, I think you'll enjoy this. I, I think you'll enjoy Joe Burns. He's uh, uh, the uh, director of bargaining for the, the flight attendants union. He's been in the labor movement for a long time. As I mentioned, he's an old friend. I know him back from uh, the 1980s and uh, uh, 90s and days when he was working in uh, healthcare. Um, so uh, please uh, uh, enjoy our interview with uh, Joe Burns. Welcome Joe to Fight Back Radio. Hey, thanks for, for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you. Um, so, uh, you know, usually I start with, a, or often I start with a little bit of an introduction and I'm thinking with you, Joe, I, I've known you a long time. Uh, I remember uh, I was a housekeeper at the University of Chicago Medical Center and you were uh, a transporter at the University of Minnesota, I think president of an AFSME local when I met you. Um, so, you uh, what, what was that like, and can you take us from, from that to what you're doing now so people know who you are a little bit? Yeah, so late 80s uh, and into the
1: 90s, I was a healthcare worker, and I was president of my local up in Minnesota at the University of Minnesota Hospital. And when I was there, I did like a lot of strike support work, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, uh, work both in my local, but also broader within the labor movement and sort of the fight backs that were going on at the time, supporting workers, uh, subsequently went to law school and then following law school, uh, worked on, uh, it was here in Chicago, worked with the Illinois nurses. And for the past, uh, 20 years, I've been working with the association of flight attendants, uh, and a variety of capacities, but mainly doing bargaining. And most recently, I'm the, currently the uh, Director of Collective Bargaining and the General Counsel at the, at the Flight Attendant Union
0: okay so you have a you have a wide breadth of experience in the labor movement and uh, you wrote a book called class Struggle Unionism which we're gonna talk about here today and we'll put it in our show notes uh, but uh, it's a uh, you know, one I highly recommend to our listeners uh, that they they check out but uh, let, let's get into it a little bit um, you know so I, I want to start. Um, and um, some of the fight back radio listeners uh, accuse me of not being uh, theoretical enough. Uh, so this this will this will take them in the re- other direction, I think. So uh, I want to talk about value a little bit. And so the uh, you know the late 18th century uh, economists like you know Adam Smith and even like Ben Franklin and people like that um, would talk about value and a labor theory of value. And then uh, you know Karl Marx uh, in the uh, 19th century you know, wrote his book Capital and, you know, talked about labor theory of value as well. And then, you know, after that, I think, uh, and I'm not an economist, but there was a, a, you know, lots of talk about, you know, laissez-faire and, you know, different uh, supply and demand and less about actually what value is and where it comes from. And you address this right at the front end of your book. Um, so you, could you t- uh, talk a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, what value is and how, how that relates to, to working people in the United States and union members? Yeah,
1: I mean, my the first chapter of the book is, uh, you know, talks about uh, you know sort of shop floor economics or class struggle economics, and the reason I start there is because that's really the fundamental point of class struggle unionism, and you know, we we you know in the book I talk about different theories of unionism. One is business unionism, which is a you know conservative form of unionism and how that differs from class struggle unionism. And, and what it turns out is that the difference between the two is how do you look at the workplace transaction? So when you think about it, um, you know, once you become a certain age, it could be a teenager or, or beyond, uh, you have to go out and get a job. And when you go out and get that job, um, if you're not working for one employer, you're working for the other. And I think the sort of more conservative business unionists typically look at it that, hey, you go and get a job. The union's role is to just you know, help you negotiate what they, their slogan would be, a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. Um, you put in your hours, you get whatever your rate is of pay, and your work rules are how you work under it. But at the end of the day, the employer owns the product that comes out of there and, you know, all of the, all of the, whatever you've created, um, and you have no rights to your workplace anymore. In contrast to that, there was a completely different view of the workplace, um, which is, you know, part of the, really the central point of class struggle unionism. And, you know, instead of saying a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, the slogan of the class struggle unionist is labor creates all wealth. And it's really based on this idea that that when you go to work, it doesn't matter whether you're a barista or an auto worker or a nurse or whatever you know, truck driver. What you share in common with the other workers is when you go to work, your labor takes whatever inputs are there from from your employer and transforms them and makes them more valuable. And so we really talk about you creating value and that your labor creates value. But at the end of the work shift, you're only paid for a fraction of the value that you create. So and through these transactions, which happen in you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands of workplaces around the United States and indeed around the world, that is why and how we get billionaires in society in this great sort of uh, differences in, in, in wealth is because the value that's created by workers flows upwards uh, to a small handful of people. So like three billionaires own more than wealth than half of the population of the United States. So so, so when we talk about, you know, I think traditionally, uh, you know, the economists talked about it, I think a little bit more theoretical about the labor theory of value and use value in a lot of different terms. Um, I, I think it's actually a pretty simple and intuitive concept, but that's like the key concept. And once you grasp that concept, or once you kind of accept that, then everything else in the book and class struggle unionism kind of flows from that basic difference.
0: So let me see if I got this right. So if me and all my coworkers at a, you know, whatever factory ABC or whatever, a coffee shop or whatever it is, you know, we, we produce, uh, um, you know, maybe, a. a you know, a certain amount, maybe, you know, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in profits over a period of a time. And uh, uh, but they pay us, you know, something less than that, like, you know, 80,000 or 50,000. And the rest of the money is is what, you know, that that's the surplus you're talking about. And so but all of the um, all of the increase of uh, value comes from our labor, the ones even though we don't make the we, we increase it by 100,000, but we get less than that. And that's that's the problem is that that's does that summed up?
1: Yeah, that's true and and I think the you know the mainstream economists when they talk about it and the employers will say that uh, um, that they're actually the ones who take the risk and they're the ones who you know create value because they're investing in creating jobs. It's actually quite interesting because in the um, presidential emergency board for the railroad workers that just got issued uh, in which is a whole another story in relation to their, um, struggle of the railroad workers for a fair contract. Um, the employers explicitly argue that, uh, labor does not create any wealth and they actually use that in their, in, in their briefs, uh, to say that. Um, so, so, so the idea of the employers is, is that, is that they're the ones who actually take the risk. They're the ones who do it then, and they call it, and they would say, well, we're, we're just taking our profit. Um, but I think traditionally, the employers have called it profit. The class struggle unionists have called it theft. Um, you know, I think our point of view is that, look it, um, they say that they're supplying all the inputs to the, you know, production process. So let's say if you're working in an auto factory, they're supplying the steel and all the rubber for the wheels and all of that. But when you think about it, they didn't create them. Those are created by other groups of workers who are similarly exploited. So all of the you know, sort of buildings that they say they're using to run the factory, well, who built those? Those were built by workers, and the employers end up controlling them and then using those uh, sort of uh, uh, things of value that were built to produce even more value, which they then pocket. So it's kind of this never-ending cycle uh, where the, the, the richer you are, the richer you're going to get. Uh, and, uh, and that's one of the fundamental questions we face as trade unionists, because if we're just like the business unionists, focusing on a very narrow role that we have, which is just to negotiate with our individual employers over how much we're getting paid for one work shift, it leaves the door open for these employers to pocket all the monies and move our plants without any regard for our, our futures, and to and to you know open up a new plant, and run away shops, and all of that because in their view it's completely legitimate. But in our view, and I think the traditional trade union movement, I you know they viewed it that. The labor, the value of the workers had really created those plants. So that's why in the 1930s, you know, auto workers could do sit down strikes because they believed that they had a greater ownership stake in their employer and the place of employment than absentee landlords who have, may have never even set foot in the plant.
0: So you're saying that, uh, you know, so we're going to talk about, and you do in the book about the uh, the difference between business unionism and class struggle unionism. And uh, the business unionists, in this case, are historically the ones that have uh, accepted uh, a lot of this view, uh, traditional view. Um, but you're, you're saying there was times in the past and sometimes even now where people take a different view, accept your view of value, and that leads them to a class struggle unionism. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction of what class struggle union is and uh, how, how that looks differently?
1: Yeah. So... If you look back for the first, you know, 100 150 years of trade unionism in the United States, the the two basic uh trends within the union movement were business unionism and business unionism, like I said, they they view themselves with a pretty narrow viewpoint. They view themselves as representing, you know, workers in one particular plant or maybe a, a craft within a within an industry, Um, but their job is just to represent those workers against those employers. They usually think of it in terms of bad employers who won't reach deals. and they don't really view their struggle as part of a bigger struggle between workers as the creators of value in society and the owners. Or the, I talk about it in the book, it's a billionaire class or people historically called them capitalists because they're the ones who control the capital, which is income producing wealth. So, so in contrast... We got a long history of class struggle unionism. If you go back, some of the brightest battles in US labor history were led by class struggle unionists. We have the industrial workers of the world in the early 1900s, who, you know, uh, when the American Federation of Labor had a racist and exclusionary form of unionism, which just represented a handful of workers, you have unionists saying we need to organize all workers. In the 1920s, you got a rich history of the unions, uh, you know, close to the Communist Party in the 1920s, the Trade Union Unity League and Educational League, um, where, you know, they engaged in some very bitter strikes down south and throughout the country, trying to, you know, fight at a time when a lot of the labor movement was just lying down and not really fighting. You fast forward into the 1930s, the great battles of the 30s, very, very much animated by these ideas of class struggle unionism and led by people who shared this philosophy. And, you know, I think more recently, you know, we can look at the 1970s, you know, which thousands of sort of radicalized students and anti-war and civil rights activists uh, went into the labor movement um, with a different vision about what the labor movement was and could be. and you know, through their struggles helped contribute to a great wave of wildcat strikes and a sort of fight back against the anti-union offensive, which was starting to build in the 1970s and which as we know, really picked up steam in the
0: 80s. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. So the, the business unionists are saying, you know we want to get a bigger piece of the pie. Or uh, you know, we want to stop the pie from shrinking, or whatever it is. We you know, we want to get as much as we can for our people. That would be their argument, I think. And uh, the class struggle unionists say we should have the whole pie because we create all the value, all the wealth. Uh, is is that accurate? Or
1: yeah, I think I think that's part of it. I, I you know, so so an example of like the conservative business unions would be, let's say, the building some of the building trades. Um, who, you know, I remember a while back in Chicago where there was the, a fight over building Walmarts and as long as they got the contract to build the Walmarts, they didn't really care what happened after that, you know, so they they would get the construction jobs to build it, or they get construction jobs to build the pipelines, but they don't really care about the social impact, but they also don't care about other workers. Uh, and that's been a traditional divide in contrast you know let's just drill down a little bit so class struggle unionists have a view of the workplace transaction as sort of inherently unfair and that it's that 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 what really happens at work is you're separating workers from the wealth they're creating and that's flowing upwards to this uh, class of people but because of that viewpoint and because they view that as happening to all workers both you know, in the United States and across the around the globe. And it doesn't matter whether you're a black worker or a white worker or what industry you're working on, you're you're um, contributing to the, you know, sort of creation of the billionaires, you're being exploited. Because of that, they viewed it not just as a fight with individual employers, but as a fight between classes of people. Cause you can talk about people who our working class who have to work for a living and you can talk about a different class of people which is a relatively small amount of the population who can live off the labor of other people you know so the quickest way to get rich is not to work hard yourself but to get other people to work hard for you so it's kind of based on uh, on this I, I think in my book i quote someone who talks about it that to the extent that there's a surplus in society that more is produced that's being consumed right away from the workers there's an inevitable battle about who gets to control that surplus and workers and class struggle unionists say that the workers should uh, control it because workers created the wealth the billionaire said that they should get it because that's the natural and divine uh, order of the universe
0: so one thing that seems to strikes me so the if you're a, a class struggle unionist, you, you just said it we need, you need to have a class outlook so it seems that solidarity becomes very important to class struggle unionists is that true and could you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah so I mean I think traditionally class struggle unionists you know saw themselves as all of us engaged in a in a battle with the employer class so uh, you know so I think class struggle unionists traditionally would look to support other workers and struggle um, to join up with them. Um, But it also led to a very sort of uh, a a deep, you know, anti-racism and anti-sexism because of the viewpoint that um, we're fighting as an entire class, um, putting, uh, you know, particular importance of bringing all workers together. So if you go back in history and read the accounts of you know how the class struggle unionists who played a key role, a lot of them were folks in or around the Communist Party in the 1930s. You know, how did they build, you know, organized steel and so forth? And it's very much how were they able to make these great inroads down south in the 1930s, um, forming an interracial unionism. And it's because they had a long history of prioritizing the fight against lynching and other forms of oppression against African Americans. So I think the class struggle unionists traditionally saw that as going hand in hand and part of their struggle against the billionaire class and not something that was, you know, sort of separate from their unionism.
0: So could you give a a current day example of a class struggle unionism or someplace you think it's working, you know, the way that you outline in your book, or I'm sure it's, you know, strengths and weaknesses within a union goes up and down or or whatever. It's uneven. But what, what would you who would you point to?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I I think that, you know, clearly we got like a lot of different uh, forms of unionism. I, I, I think that, you know, of the national unions, I think the United Electrical Workers is probably the best example of a union that's consistently held a class struggle union outlook uh, for decades. Um, and you know there used to be one of the i won't go into their history that long i know you had carl rosen we
0: had carl rosen our (laughs) listeners who missed that episode go back and listen to it and you'll get the 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 story of the ue from carl rosen but uh yeah go ahead i'm sorry but
1: but anyway so you know they were kind of red baited out of the 1950s they used to have a half a million members one of the biggest unions in the country um but they're still around and they believe in you know sort of the you know, when we talk about class struggle unionism, we talk about like, what are the key features of class struggle unionism? You know, obviously class struggle unionists fight for the entire working class, but I think that there's a lot of distinguishing features between class struggle unions and and the other ones. And one of those is, you know, this concept of them and us. It's this idea that, um, that, Because of how we view the workplace transaction, we view uh, that there's an inevitable struggle between the workers and the owners. So, you know, I think the business unionists go go around looking to put out fires and, and to dampen things down, whereas class struggle unionists are, you know, more than willing to sort of engage in the fight and kind of build fights wherever they can. Um, so it's a kind of them and us unionism that, you know, our, our philosophy is that on every issue, we our, our interests are diametrically opposed from those of the employers. So I think UE has long talked about that in, in form of union called them and us unionism. But there's others out there. I mean, I think there's a lot of folks around labor notes you know traditionally who you know the the founders of so forth who you know supported rank and file caucuses and anti-concessions a lot of us you and i you know way back in the 80s and 90s you know were, were part of the anti-concessions movement which is very sure, much uh, yeah. uh very much tied into you know this class struggle unionism i think the other you know just briefly mention them uh you, you know some of the other features are class struggle unionness you know, look towards uh, fights on the shop floor. So the business unionists are really saying, well, we're just selling your labor and and doing that transaction. And once you do it, you know, we may have some work rules, but the employer really kind of, you know, controls you for those eight hours or however many hours you're working. But I think the class struggle unionists, and this is going back to sort of classic economic theory, you know, understood, and I know it as a bargainer, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, that, um, you know, I I think the employers understand that, yeah, they can, you know, if they have you for eight hours, you know, they can take a certain amount of the value you produce. But what if they can get you to work 12 hours? Or what if they can get you to work twice as hard during those eight hours, but pay the same, then the amount of value that they're going to be able to take from your labor Increases, so that's why we see so many fights over the length of the workday. Why we see fights about um, productivity and what happens on the shop floor? Because I think employers understand, and I know this from bargaining, um, that you can fight over whether you're getting a, uh, you know, four percent or three percent or whatever the number raises, is. But if they're able to like really take away key work rules and make you work harder, then you know the, they're pocketing way more money. So, so I think. Uh, That's another big difference.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's right. I've had uh, over the years in the labor movement, I've had people occasionally come up to me and say, you know, Richard, we need to get rid of this uh, management rights clause. It's no good. And it's exactly for those of you that are union members, you may know you have a management rights clause, I'll guarantee it in your contract. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's what Joe was just talking about. It says that management has this kind of control. And so this push and pull on the shop floor becomes very important um let me uh, uh go back I mean you you, you you're correct and you know, I'm, I'm a student of labor history as well and uh, these uh, this these fights between uh, the class struggle uh, unionists and uh, the business unions in, in, in debates you have know, been going on for more than a century. But in your book you introduce a new group uh, you call them the labor liberals and uh, they, uh, they they play a, a role that's you know, Concealed or, or new, you know, new starting. I think in the late seventies, early eighties, somewhere in there. You know, you can. I'll let you talk about, it. but can you say who they are and uh, what function they've played within the labor movement?
1: Yeah. So um, in the last several decades, a lot of the sort of leading ideas in the labor movement in terms of theory have come from a group that I call labor liberals, and. You know, in the 1980s, the unions—you uh, know—you had these bureaucratic business unions. Um, you had, you know, a relatively weak but but st- still important class struggle trend, and you know, unions were under attack by employers. And there developed a, a sort of grouping within the labor movement. And a lot of those were kind of the ex-student radicals who had gone into the labor movement. But 10, 15 years later, they might have gone back to graduate school and they were labor education professionals, or they might have been mid-level staffers or so far that rose in the ranks of the labor movement. And they started propagating an idea that you know, was against the sort of conservative business unionism. But it really wasn't class struggle unionism either. So it was kind of a third way. And, and, you know, I think it's probably best to, you know, give some examples. I think in the 1990s, they were really focused on the organizing approach. They, you know, that unions needed to be organizing, which we do. But it was a very staff driven model and one in which not coincidentally, they were kind of leading as the, you know, sort of expert organizers in the organizing departments. Kind of moving forward from there, I think, it, you know, I think it can be best typified in the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, at the international level, certainly. I think there's a mix at the local levels. Um, but, uh, but it was this idea that they had a different form of unionism. And what they started to do was veer further and further away from the workplace. So you get to a situation where they're doing the fight for 15 and the fast forward worker organizing, which on the one hand, it's important work and it's good, but it has a lot more in common with, you know, sort of legislative activities of nonprofits than real sort of worker led. Um, unionism. So they would do these strikes where they would use the language of the strikes and talk about strikes and send out, uh, you know, press releases on the strike, but they'd have very, very little participation, you know, from the actual workers. So it would be like, you know, a couple fired workers and a bunch of staffers and community support members rather than, you know, sort of traditional trade unionism. So, so I talk about it and I go through the book and I kind of explain, like, how do they differ from business unionism and class struggle unionism? And you can kind of go through, uh, you know, each of the points. Um, and I think, I think the problem with it is that it developed this form of unionism that on the one hand, you know, it helped us out in the labor movement because, the, you know, you were around back then. The labor movement, AFL-CIO back in the 1980s was absolutely horrid.
0: Um, no, it's true. It's true. I was there <laughs> and it was horrible positions
1: on immigration, on race, on, on pretty much down, down the line. Um, they, you know, if you did strike support work, they'd look at you with suspicion. It was like a subversive activity to support other workers. I remember going to the Central Labor Council and he's like, why are you working with them? Is that going to be another P9 or another, you know, another uh, internal battle?
0: What was P nine? Yeah,
1: it was one of the one of the very important fightbacks of the nineteen eighties, where a uh, a local of meatpacking workers uh, down in uh, Austin, Minnesota, chose to fight back against what it would turn out to be the sort of decimation of wage standards in the industry, and they were fighting to keep wages back then at like eleven bucks an hour or so, if I recall. And I mean, right. and but they were up against the International Union, which was promoting an orderly retreat, and who was really not willing to fight. So it became a very you know a cause that all of the class struggle unionists. This is some of my first labor rallies I went to, you know, kind of you know took up the cause of P nine in their fight. And in the course of their fight, they really. They really started to, you know, contend with the court system and, and how did they break free. You know, we had some pretty militant picket lines down at the at the plant there. National Guard gets called in. Eventually, the international steps in. They really don't want this fight. They trust the local. The local tries to uh, extend the picket lines into other meatpacking plants, which is what should have been done and what historically would have been done. So, so it was a really kind of... Uh, you know, and the, and the and the business unionists really cracked down on anyone in the labor movement who supported
0: them after a certain point. So. so they they are a good example of class struggle unionism, then.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think they started out kind of militant business unionists, you know, probably, but through the course of struggle, I think it became clear, you know, and they and then they were supported with a class struggle trend throughout. So.
0: Okay, so then um, you you were starting to counterpose uh, the labor liberals. Uh, to, to P9 or to class struggle unionists. And uh, um, you, you, run, you, you said in your book you, you, have, you, you go through the whole thing. Could you, why don't you do a little bit of that now and, and say how we're different than, uh, than what they were and how some of what they did was good, but some of it was confusing, possibly?
1: Yeah. So, first point, mm. let's just go through the point. So, we got them and us unionism. So, the business unionists. Don't really, you know, they're always looking for accommodations. They may get in some fights with employers if they're bad employers, so they're willing to do open-ended strikes. But at the end of the day, they're trying to tamp things down. Class struggle unionists are out there trying to build and promote struggle wherever they can. You know, not that we don't get deals, but we're also looking to uh, uh, looking to build the, build the fight. Um, the labor liberals is a little mixed because they, they talk about taking on industries But when you look at their tactics, uh, they're all very controlled. You know, it's all the one day strikes and the publicity strikes and the corporate campaigns and so forth. It's all uh, sort of forms of struggle that don't lead to sort of sharp class on class struggle. I think we've also seen some of the downfalls of it in the 1990s. You know, Andy Stern, who was the head of the Service Employees International Union and talked a good game. Um, you know, but, but over time it became apparent that, you know, he would, he would use a little militancy to try and get the workers organized, but then he was very much into collaboration with employers and now he's out shilling for the corporations, you know, on these various uh, boards and working with finance capital groups. So I think it, 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 it's fundamentally different. So the, so the other, you know, sort of thing about the, the shop floor struggle You know, we already talked about the differences. You know, with the class struggle unionists, how that's an important feature. I think with a lot of these initiatives that come out of the of the labor liberals, you can see it's it's even further removed from the workplace than the business unionists. You know, so you got these worker centers, you know, which do some good work, but they're not necessarily even rooted in particular workplaces and fighting, you know, in the workplaces. You know, and I'm not going to lump them all in one category, but like as a general rule. Um, You got the fight for 15 and all those initiatives, which really weren't, you know, which are using the language of the labor movement, but not really traditional unionism based in the workplace. Um, Another feature I didn't talk about was class struggle unionists believe that the working class must emancipate itself. So there's some big words, but it's basically to say that really believe in sort of union democracy and rank and file struggle and rank and file control of the process. And we're not there just to. You know, be staffers and fixings for workers, but it's part of the worker struggle that the only way we're going to change society is by workers being involved in their own fights and leading them. And you know, I think the business unionists, you know, you know, view this bureaucratic role and staffers and experts, you know, kind of know things. Um, but also the the labor liberals. I mean, they they don't. You don't hear them talking about union democracy and and those types of issues that have traditionally been key for the class struggle unionists. So you 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 have a situation where the Service Employees International Union's taking, you know, SEIU's taking these real progressive positions and all these social issues, but then at the same time they're building these locals that that, you know, are, you know, a couple hundred thousand members stretching up and down the coast. And there's no way that groups of workers can credibly control their workplaces. So as opposed to like the UE, which would be you know one one plant or one you know workplace one local so you at least have some ability to control it um
0: so anyway so, so i think it's just down the whole host of items well, and, well let me go back on some of this so uh if uh so you know t- just uh, to take uh some of what seiu did and uh you know this is was sharply debated at the time there was a split in the afl-cio led by uh, seiu but uh what they said at the time was uh we need to put more resources into organizing the unorganized, that so we'd lost uh, density in our power as, as unions because we'd become so small that uh, we needed to put more resources into unionizing. And by consolidating, they were, uh, you know, just like a, a, a business, I suppose, they were getting rid of redundancies and were able to... Um, uh, you know, put the resources into organizing the unorganized, and, and I think you know what most union, all union people would say: Yeah, we need to organize. Even now, lots more people. We're I don't know six or seven percent of uh, the private sector right now. And so, how would you answer that? One, it didn't work. Um, so
1: I, I, and and it didn't work for a reason. So, and I talk about this a lot more in my first book, which is Reviving the Strike. Um, where, where I sort of critiqued that whole approach. Um, and I wrote that book around, it was published in 2011. But, but I think what I noted was that, it, you know, SEIU spent a billion dollars just by themselves as one union between like 1995 and 2004. Yet, despite all of that expenditures and they hired tons of organizers out of college and so forth, and they pushed the whole labor movement to do the same thing, but they were unable to budge density in their in their core jurisdiction healthcare, and and if you look at the numbers, it basically w- was static during that period. Um, they got the growth that they got was mainly through sort of affiliations of these independent unions and so forth, uh, or merger agreements. And the the reason it didn't work is that it didn't really. F- Focus on the fundamental problem and the cause of labor de- labor's decline, which wasn't necessarily organizing or inability to organize. Although we, as class struggle unionists, obviously support organizing, right? We we don't think it's it, we It's not okay that we have six out of a hundred private sector workers in unions, but the problem is that we lack. You know, an effective strike and bargaining power and an ability to really take on capital. And what we've shown throughout history is that when unions focus on regaining militancy and the ability to, you know, whether it takes violating labor law or whatever it takes, that that's when we make the sort of big qualitative breakthroughs that are are going to bring people into our labor movement. So so, so I think they, they were basically fundamentally focused on the wrong strategy. And I would say not just back then, but for the last, you know, 20, 25 years, they have sort of promoted one idea after another. And all of them have like these kernels or even more than a kernel of truth. Of course, we need to organize. It's the unorganized. Of course, we need to bargain for the common good. Of course, we need to. would meaning we have to have broad demands and fight for the entire class. You know, those are all core things uh, we believe in. Of course, there should be you know ties with community groups, but none of them can revive the labor movement, and that's why we're stuck in the in in, in the problem we are. And the and the basic problem we have is one between, you know, do we believe in class conflict or class collaboration? And until we sort of refound the labor movement on class struggle principles, um, we're not going to revive the labor movement. So they can hire all the organizers they want, and it's not going to work.
0: Some of what the I think the, the what you're calling labor liberals have pushed. Also, is uh, for more political solutions through the electoral system, uh, particularly uh, um, you know, like the fight for 15 was a lot of that in different city councils passing it in states and trying to uh, increase the the floor. Um, of, of wages and uh and, and you just alluded to the the fact that labor laws are uh, very restrictive to workers right now and there's a uh, the the one percent that has been successful at uh, getting the, the laws that they want um do you how what's your view of electoral politics shouldn't we be trying to uh, um elect people i mean for a democracy shouldn't we be able to uh uh, elect people to to do the things that we want them to do, and to to change the laws to get a, a fifteen dollar minimum wage or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. So, one, I think it's correct that the 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 labor liberals, you know, essentially have a legislative, you know, sort of agenda, and they use the language and in many cases they've of captured or you know are in charge of some unions or central labor councils but they're not really necessarily looking to organize the workers but really to use strikes and the and the discussion of strikes and these fake publicity strikes in order to get legislation passed. Now it's not that that's a bad thing getting legislation passed. But it's not the same as traditional trade unionism, and it's not a substitute for unionism. In terms of the bigger question, um, which is you know probably ties into another set of beliefs of class struggle unionists, is um, you know traditionally the class struggle unionists would say the bosses have two parties; it's time for the workers to have one. Um, that was Tony Tony Mazaki, the legendary and great. Uh, uh, leader of the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, father of OSHA, and, you know, a lot of things, but he labor also, Party, he, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 in the 1990s, as yeah. you know, Rich, uh, they he, he, you know, played a key role in forming Labor Party advocates, which was kind of a pre-Labor Party formation. So I think, so one of the problems that we see with the labor movement, and this is both the labor liberals and the um, business unionists, is the close sort of ties and identification with the Democratic Party. And, and the problem with that is, is that the Democratic Party, even though it gets some union funding and so forth, is a party that overall is sort of, uh, you know, in the thralls of the billionaire class. And, and it, it is not truly an independent party, if you look at the funding and so forth and the sort of set of ideas that, you know, sway it, particularly at the national level. So so part of the problem with that is it allows for the entry into the labor movement it's not just wasted resources supporting people who are going to stab us in the back but it's also that you know the the close ties between the demo, top Democrats and the top labor officials it it gets us kind of thinking like them which is really not thinking like, you know, the, the, the workers that are supposed to be represented, but more like the managers and funders of the Democratic Party.
0: Well, I mean, it seems to me, though, you know, the Democrats have not been effective as an offensive weapon, um, you know, in, at least not in my lifetime. And I, I'm old. Uh, and so uh, but, you know, I look at like Wisconsin, where they had Act 10 and and they were, you know, other places where they've tried to just outlaw unions and are as much as they can. Um, and where the Republican Party has succeeded in taking both houses and the governorship, uh, where they become right to work and, you know, whatever the public sector is outlawed. And the Democrats, you know, for as a defensive weapon, potentially could have, you know, could have held on to that or vetoed or I don't know what what the deal is. But how would you answer something like that?
1: Well, I mean, I I think If you wind back the clock to 2010 or 2011 and look at a lot of the statements out there, I think there were a lot of statements turning on public employee unions from uh, the Democratic Party officials in these states. And, you know, traditionally, you know, my second book was Strike Back, which talks about the public employee strikes of the 1960s and 70s. And that was a militant strike wave that was, you know, predominantly. Uh, conducted against uh, the democratic party and democratic party uh, officials and we had to you know engage in a whole series of illegal strikes to be able to uh, to gain our unions, I think if you look at the experience here in Chicago, for example, you know we talk about the teachers' union strikes. You talk about the red state strikes, uh, you know, which were down in, uh, you know, Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia, and so forth. But we also had the blue state strikes, you know, where starting with the Chicago teachers, you know, you have this you know ten-year battle with the Democratic administration. Um, you know, who's uh, supporting the underfunding of schools and so forth. So I think, it's, I, I think it's a little bit different, the battles that you have with the Democrats and the Republicans, but I think, um, y- you know, we end up having our, our battles uh, with them both. And I think on the bigger picture of sort of labor law and labor reform, I think that the Democrats are willing to, you know, support us within a narrow sort of uh, band. But once we get beyond that, um, and workers start engaging in the type of militancy that we would need, you, you know, to, uh, to revive the labor movement. You know, we got the case going on with the, with the mine workers where the, uh, the Biden NLRB has, uh, the region there has come up with the novel idea that uh, part of the injunction and, and uh, damages against the union is lost production of the employer during uh, the strike. Um, which is unheard of. So they're basically, I think Cecil Roberts said, the mine worker said, the point of a strike is to cause them to lose production. But now you're going to go and because of some isolated picket line uh, conduct, I won't say misconduct, I'll say conduct, uh, now you're going to come after the union. So I think we also saw that with, uh, I won't go on forever, but you saw that with the the, uh, Obama NLRB coming down hard on militancy and the ILWU, the Longshore Workers in the West Coast, and they're still fighting the sort of eighteen—I think it was eighteen million dollars in fines that they got.
0: So, uh, in your book, if I'm right, uh, you suggest we just need to throw down here, and uh, you know, if if uh, if the laws, uh, uh, we can't we can't let them get in the way of our victory, and that, and uh, even you even suggest uh, we may need to break some laws. Um, is how how do, how do you see that? I mean, that seems like a high risk thing to me.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a key question facing the labor movement, but one that's uh, rarely discussed. Um, over the years, what the employers have been able to do with their allies in Congress and the courts is institute a what I call a system of labor control, where all of the uh, effective traditional tactics of labor have been outlawed. Um, so now, all that's allowed is you know you can. You, you know, form your union, maybe if you can get through the repression by the employers. But then when you bargain, you you're, you have the so-called right to strike, but employers can permanently replace you. And, you know, we had a little period in the last couple of years where the labor market was pretty constricted. So workers had the confidence in production to be striking, but that's a temporary feature. And, and what we found in the eighties and beyond is employers could use all of the tools that they have and bust unions and bust strikes. So if we're going to revive the we can't have a class struggle union movement if we don't have class struggle tactics. So I got a whole chapter on that. And 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 I think the key point here is in order to be able on a widespread scale to engage in these sort of tactics, militancy, plant occupations and so forth. I, I, we need a set of ideas, a class struggle set of ideas that are gonna validate those a- actions. And I think historically in the 1930s, that's what people had. Um, they believed in their right to do it. And likewise, in the 1960s, teachers believed in their right to strike and they were willing to defy injunctions and go out on strike.
0: So uh, in your union, uh, the Association of Flight Attendants, uh, your, your president, uh, Sarah Nelson, has been an outspoken critic of the AFL-CIO and, uh, and in fact, you are, too, <laughs> right here on Fight Back Radio today in some ways, but in uh, uh, but, uh, some of the, those tactics. But uh, um, could you talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, there was talk of her running for president of the AFL-CIO at one time, and uh, there was uh, uh, of trying to, to push uh, the, these things. Do you think that's something we should be trying to do is to try to run people for uh, head of the AFL-CIO and for offices like that and with these ideas?
1: I think it's a very difficult situation because uh, the AFL-CIO is, uh, you know, you go to the convention and it's not like it's uh, elected by, you know, what all the delegates think there. The votes at the international convention are tightly controlled by the international uh, union presidents who, you know, by and large, look very different than the membership that they represent. A lot of them are, you know... uh, older white males um, and you know I don't think in general uh, are that open to uh, open to the type of change that we need in the labor movement. So I think the question of you know how do we sort of build a class struggle trend in the labor movement I, I, I do think it is uh, you know and, and I think I have discussion about this, you know, I think it is a a two prong strategy. Both, I think we need to, and we don't do enough of putting demands on our national union leaders. I think in the last couple of decades, basically, I, I don't think anyone really looks to the AFL CIO national leadership for leadership. None of the activists that I know in the labor movement are looking there. 20 years ago, I think people were trying to fight and push the AFL-CIO to take different positions, or it's a big fight with change to win, and even before that in the 1990s. But nowadays, they're not really part of the debate. I think people are going out and organizing on their own. We've got the Starbucks workers organizing, the Amazon workers organize, and where's the AFL-CIO to be found in that? They're not even in the discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. So I... And, you know, in part, people are doing that because, it, you know, they're, they're not really helpful. But on the other hand, I think class struggle unionists traditionally have had an idea that their goal wasn't just to go out and do it themselves and organize themselves, that their goal was to transform the entire labor movement and put it on a class struggle basis. And that was by putting forward demands, by contending you know, within unions and so forth. That's why historically the sort of idea of these union democracy networks were so important. So I, I, I don't think in the long run we can just ignore the labor federations, but I, I think transforming them is, a, you know, it, it's, it's a big task. And, and, it, and it probably has to start off with reforming smaller, you know, building a bigger trend within the labor movement.
0: So let me ask you, if, if I'm a, a, a union member, um, at some you know whatever some place in uh, I'm uh, may, whether it be uh, labor liberals or business unionists run, but running are running my union but I'm not in the UE let's say and uh, um, but uh, and I'm not you know uh, uh, wh- where do I start how do I do this you know how do I how do I get class struggle unionism if we don't have it here how do we get from here to where we need to be
1: Yeah well I mean I think it's a it's a general you know approach to labor work so I I think um, you know, a, a lot of it uh, is based on building struggle and believing in the rank and file and believing in your co-workers. So, so I think the way that we traditionally have transformed unions is, you know, some people say you just go out and run and try and take over your local and do that. But I think the more successful sort of strategies, I think if you look at the Chicago Teachers Union, for example, the... Uh, the core, the caucus within within the union, um, they you know very much started engaging in struggles over the closing of schools and so forth, and struggles with the employer. So I think most of the class struggle unionists um, kind of do those two together. Um, I think uh, in in my book I quote uh, uh, I think it's quoting Farrell Dobbs from the nineteen thirties Minneapolis Strucker Strike, but talking about um, you know, you, you start to fight with the employer and, you know, the bureaucrats will get caught in the crossfire, you know, yeah. so it's not like you're putting the main sort of fire against them. But I think the more we build struggle, that's how we transform our unions. And, and then you end up putting demands on the union leadership to be
0: with you or fight or else you're going to have to move past them. And I think that's historically what I've seen. Okay. So, uh, we're, we're almost out of time. Is there anything you'd like to add uh, any message you'd like to tell the fight back radio listeners?
1: No, I, 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 uh, you know, I hope you folks will uh, check out uh class struggle unionism. I, I think there's a, a, lot of concepts in there that, you know, we can have uh, further discussion on uh, a lot of folks are, uh, uh, which is interesting, have been doing uh, studies of the book with their co-workers uh, where they go through the chapters and kind of have discussions about how it applies to their work. If you want to do that, you can get discounted copies uh, through Haymarket and we can can hook you up there.
0: Okay. So uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but the book is uh, Class Struggle Unionism by Haymarket Books. And uh, you've had two earlier books, which I would also recommend uh, Strike Back and uh, reviving the strike uh, so you look for those uh, wherever books are sold I guess um, you have a Facebook page uh, reviving the strike as well that uh, people can uh, find you there and so uh, thank you so much it has been a rich discussion and hopefully it's uh, provoked uh, some of our listeners to have some discussion with their co-workers as well so thank you Joe
1: all right thanks sir. thank you Joe Burns uh, and uh, as
0: I just encourage people, go out and buy Joe's book, uh, Class Struggle Unionism. I think it's one of the more important books written about the labor movement in recent times. And uh, um, it'll spark some discussion if you're in the labor movement or not. Um, I know uh, some of my friends who have uh, been around C threes 503s, have, uh, uh, it sparked some discussion with them as well as those in the labor movement. C uh, threes, by the way, are the not-for-profit organizations. Um So go out and check it out and uh, check out some of Joe's earlier books too, uh, Strike Back and uh, Reviving the Strike, both excellent books. Um, I want to also, uh, before we uh, go off the air, I want to make a correction. I made a mistake in our last episode with Richard Blake, and I should have known better. Uh, Richard uh, at one point uh, said talked about the Taft-Hartley Bill and said it passed in the 1947 or late 40s, and uh, I corrected him and said, no, I think the early 50s, and I was wrong. And Richard Blake was correct, and uh, I'm a little embarrassed because I consider myself a student of labor history, Um, but I wanted to make that correction. Um, But also, uh, um, just to say, uh, uh, if you've held with us in the podcast this long, you should subscribe to this podcast if you are not right now, and you should like it. Um, We want you to do that. Uh, We want you to tell a friend about it, to promote us on social media, all these things. Write a review. This helps people find us. And, um, you know, I think we have a good podcast here. We've had some some really good guests, and uh, I want people to hear them, and, and we want to, you know, lift them up. Um, we'll continue to do that. So I want to thank, uh, once again, Joe Burns for being our guest this week. Finally, I also want to thank our Fight Back uh, radio production team of Vince Olson, Shane Tremley, and Doug McLogan For the entire Fight Back radio team, I'm Richard Bergson, and until next time, all power to the people.